I had influence, even though I didn't know I had influence. We all have influence. We all have impact on people. And so we have the ability to make changes and make decisions along the way. Welcome to Owning Your Legacy. I'm your host, Lorette Rondonet. This podcast is about exploring just what it means to own your legacy. Through intimate conversations, we explore how to bravely tap into purpose, leadership, and becoming visible. My hope is that we inspire you to realize your own potential. Go after your dreams and boldly leave your mark. It all begins with bravely owning your legacy. Welcome, Suzanne. If you don't mind, will you please introduce yourself for our listeners? Yes, I'm Suzanne Nance, and um, I have a company called Lead From The Top, and it's leadfromthetop.com. You can always come visit me there. And a lovely book out there, too, that you can find. Yes, I have a book. It's called Lead From The Top, How to Make Your Life, Your Team, and Your Leadership a Grand Adventure, and it can be found on Amazon.com. I'm really excited to hear about your story. So so let's start with that because you have an amazing story. I always like to say I come from humble beginnings. <laughs> I'm the one who knows everybody at the post office and at the grocery store line, you know, all that yes. kind of stuff. But I happen to own, own a world record. Um, I happen to be the first American woman to accomplish what they call the Adventures Grand. Congratulations. That's huge. It is huge. That means I climbed the tallest mountain on each of the seven continents. And I always have to say that includes Everest. And then I skied to the North and South Pole. And so it was quite a feat. And I accomplished it all. And I'm still here that to talk is about amazing. it. So how long did it take you to accomplish that? It took two years and 80 days to do the mountain climbing and the South Pole trek. And then it took one more year, 2007, I was offered to go with a company and uh, National Geographic's was also going. So I was in a magazine. That oh, they nice. So two years, you said two years and eight months to do most of it? 83, 83 oh, days. Wow. So you did it solid. You just kept going, never took a break. Um, I... I had kids. Of course, uh, I took a break. You know, you don't go constantly. Um, so I'd come home, I'd parent, I'd get things lined up. You know, they'd be in camp or whatever they needed to be doing. And then I would go again. Um, it's all a timing. You go to South America, North America, Asia, all this kind of stuff. So, so the timing of all these places also coincided with my kids' schedule because I I, I was wow. a mom. I'm a mom. And how old were your kids when you did this? That's really intriguing. I started um, when my kids were in junior high and I finished when they were in high school. And I kept trying to drag them with Ooh. me. They uh, ended up going to Kathmandu. That was Everest. Um, and But I, I did try to drag my kids with me. But, you know, High school kids are not always keen about what their parents exactly. are doing. So how many do you have? <laughs> I have two. I have five boys and I have two in high school Woo! right now. So going into sophomore, junior. And um, so I know what you mean. I'm always trying to drag them with me. What intrigued you or what compelled you, maybe is a better word, to do this craziness? <laughs> that sounds crazy. <laughs> so I was, it's, you know, I have a book. And 
it's in book. And I always love to say, well, there was a little deviance about that. So I had to have hand surgery. I'd cut a tendon almost off in my finger. And um, I had I had the surgery done right beforehand, and I was on a lot of drugs, unfortunately, for pain. And so I was reading my favorite magazine, National Geographic's Travelers, and it talked about how um, Kilimanjaro, the snows on it were going to disappear. And I made this commitment to the busload of people. I'm going to summit Kilimanjaro. <laughs> was it the drugs? And so <laughs> I think at the time it was, but I had read, you know, Hemingway's The Snows of Kilimanjaro and it was um, Wild America, you know, you saw all this stuff and it, it, it was more than that. Um, I kind of say it was a little of both. And so I wanted to go and climb Kilimanjaro and when I did it, I got to the top. Um, it was painful. And when I came home, I kind of was depressed. I didn't know what was wrong with me. And I reached out to the person who had kind of helped me get to Kilimanjaro. And he says, oh, I think you have it. And I'm like, what What do I have? Because there's lots of bugs and, and parasites in Africa. I'm like, oh, my God, I, I got something. He goes, no, I think you have the climbing wow. bug. Wow. So I kind of set myself in line to do some more stuff. And um, I found a climbing buddy in Russia. And she and I climbed many peaks from there. Um, and she made it just so fun and enjoyable. Are you still friends today? Oh, very close friends today. Do you get to see her very often or does she live in Russia? <laughs> no, she lives, she in, lives Seattle. in Seattle. Oh, that's not too bad. You should see her more often then. Yeah, I should see her more often, but we are super close. Nobody makes me laugh like that, gal. Uh, and you've been you. through so much together. I can't even imagine a friendship like that. So yeah, so share how you compare the hardships and trials and tribulations of these many summits and this Grand Slam record holder that you are and how you compare that to analogies in life and and how you help coach people using yeah. that experience. So everybody has an Everest in their life, really. I mean, it's so tr that that's just so true. And it, it might not be the real pinnacle or the real mountain, but everybody has something in their life that it seems overwhelming. Like, how, how would I even start? And so through coaching, um, I love to put what I call mileposts out. It's It can be a simple path as long as you kind of see the next step and, and work towards that step, reevaluate, and then move on to the next. I mean, that's so much with climbing. You go to camp one. Camp two, camp three, et cetera, et cetera. Some seem so daunting to get there, but a lot of times you you get to come back and go, okay, I'm in a safe zone. Things are fine. I get to eat more. I get to, you know, breathe bigger air, so to speak. It and it's the same in coaching. Not everything has to be so so rapid or so extreme that we can't sort of enjoy the journey, stop and look where we are along the way, reevaluate what we really want. Um, sometimes we're reaching for something 
And as we're putting those mileposts down, our attention veers and says, oh, you know, gosh, I don't really care to get to that, but I'd really like to get to this instead. And, and in coaching, we get to make those choices. We get to make what you want important, not what the mountain dictates. Mm-hmm. So can you give some, for examples of some of your clients and what their Everest might be? So I've, I've <laughs> many people. So in um, uh, C-suites, you know, moving on to the another job. So it seems like I, I'm not prepared. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to get there, right? So we start to break down what maybe their resume looks like. And it's amazing. I mean, I'm not in the C-suite. So, you know, you say, well, how, how can I help you, right? But indeed, it's so simple to break down the essentials and go, okay, well, where do you want to be? What mm-hmm. what do you think the next step would be to get there? Um, I've worked with people in Agile, in, in project management. So there's several types of project management, the waterfall type or the Agile. Like you got to change immediately or you kind of go through step by step by step. And, and the Agile is rather new, but it's it's immediate. Like it's happening all the time. You're putting your finger on the pulse. Where do we need to be? How do we get there? Let's make this quick. And again, I've coached many people who aren't project managers in this role, but are great leadership people. Can stand back and look at a whiteboard, talk to the people that they have, figure out what needs to be done and move on for the next week, right? Mm-hmm. I've dealt with people who want to make complete career changes. I don't think I'm in the right career where I am right now. I'm not happy. I don't know what to be doing. Well, let's talk about this. What makes you happy? But what what mm-hmm. feels good for you? So again, always plugging into the client to make sure that they feel confident in what they would need to do, but but also being flexible so that we can change directions. Right. Did that have to? Did that happen to you often when you were doing these summits? That I would imagine, you know, you had a plan, or your you and your team had a plan, and then weather. So you know, talk about how you had to be so flexible and adaptable on your adventures. Let's go to twenty six thousand feet on Everest, like the death zone. <laughs> so we get out. It's a terrible, what we call a spin drift. It wasn't really weather, but so because it's in a saddle between two mountains, Everest and Lhotse Face, the wind is going like this constantly, right? And I I start out, my goggles get frosted on the inside, on the inside. I cannot see, I cannot protect my eyes and my face. It happened three, four times before my guide said, just go without them. Can you do that? You can go without the goggles? I tried. I think I'm getting frostbit, right? All this stuff. I turn. I'm I'm not an Everest summiter. I will not risk my life, my feet, my face. I'm I'm not that adaptability. It's like finger on the pulse again. What is this worth, right? Everything worth family, friends, life, limbs, right? And sometimes in coaching, we have to make these decisions. What is this worth to you? How, how valuable is this next step? So I went back and, you know, it's in the book, all this stuff that went on and I fell asleep into a deep sleep. 
And then my tent mate came in and I'm like, congratulations for making the summit. He goes, we turned an hour after you did. And I'm like, genius. <laughs> oh, Yay. You were um, like, yeah. <laughs> right. But, but it has, I had influence, even though I didn't know I had influence. We all have influence. We all have impact on people. And so we have the ability to make changes and make decisions along the way. So tell tell our listeners how you trained. I did I did listen and, and research and heard about the hill, and I think that was yeah. uh, really interesting. So I'd love you to share of what how you got ready for these summits. I live in the Chicagoland Very area. Flat. It's flat, in case you didn't know. <laughs> so close to my house was a retention. So they had dug out, you know, so that all the drainage went into here. And they piled that all up in this little tiny sledding hill. So I would go out and I started climbing first with a backpack and cat sand, 20 pounds and up and down and up and down. Because you just have to train your body to accept the way that you're moving. And then over time, I would go out in freezing temperatures. You know, I... I I relished going out in minus 30 degrees wind. (laughs) I'm like, well, Chicago is good for that. You get that. (laughs) (laughs) And I would walk up and down for hours. So in training in anything, if you get to a certain amount, let's say if you're at 10 miles, you can double it and run 20 miles. So if I could walk three hours, you could do six hours. And that's about how much you are doing because you have to build camp and break camp every day. I mean, that does go back to what you were saying. It's the milestones and breaking it down into smaller pieces to get to the top of Everest. To get and to you the had a Everest. really important <laughs> mentor in your life, didn't you? So share about share about your mentor that that helped you step-by-step of really what you needed to do in order to to do these summits? So when I first started, I had no idea how to get started. And so there was a fellow in the Chicagoland. He was was an amazing man. And um, he was friends of mine and and my husband's at the time. And um, I reached out to him and I discovered that he was the oldest gentleman he was trying to break his own record. He was the oldest gentleman attempting the seven summits. And all he had left was Everest. And he had been there once before, but didn't make the top. But he was planning to go back. Uh, Al Hanna is his name. He's no longer with us. Unfortunately, he's passed, but a great man. And I consulted with him along the way. He, he, he shared with me how to do Kilimanjaro. I borrowed his boots uh, when I went to Russia. When I came back, he was like, oh, my gosh, you know, you got you got to do the next and here's how it is. And and he he really helped me along the way to kind of set my sights in a very limited way. Like, hey, these mile posts that we talked about. Try this. Try that try this. And always I would come back to him and he would say, well, what do you think? How's it going? Much like a coach would do. Mm-hmm. Great man. And you said in one that one, I think podcast I was listening to that there was like a club that you met him at this club, Explorers Club. That sounded, that sounded like a really cool place. 
Explorers Club in Chicago. It still exists. It just doesn't have a location. But yes. So it was started by Teddy Roosevelt. And um, it goes back a long way. And the club was white tablecloth and little cups and saucers and and findings. Like all these cool shrunken heads and you wow. know, all these amazing things mm-hmm. on the wall. And I met him there and, and people would get these flags for what they did, you know. So it was so cool. I mean, I'd never been like a curio. It was like, it's like a movie, like a curio like a, pop movie. Or like a museum even, it sounded yes. like as you were describing it. So you skied both the South and the North Pole. So what is that? I feel like I've seen a show on this too, but describe that a little more. So the South Pole is you're at altitude, you're about 9000 feet, but it's they you go over these things called strustugis, which are like little I waves. could even say that. Yeah. <laughs> it's a it's a Russian term. I'm probably slaughtering it, but I think that's what it's called. So anyway, it's like little waves and that's why you can't walk it or even snowshoe it because you would just sink into this each and every time. So you try to ski over the top with as least amount of um, weight pressing you downward, right? So it's it's this way versus this way. But the North Pole is probably, so to your point, what was the hardest? It was probably the North Pole. It was right. so hard. It was so hard and I loved it. I, I came back and my abs, you know, those washboard abs that you see today, my son pokes me. He goes, what's that? I'm like, those are my abs. <laughs> That's fantastic. It was so funny, but you have a harness on. You're pulling these things that look like kayaks, right? And they're filled with your stuff. It's about 80 pounds, 75 to 80 pounds. And you're pulling these th- things. And on the North Pole, what happens is the ice will separate and then it'll scrunch back up and you'll have these huge, like, towers of ice blocks and you have to go through it so you're pulling this thing and you've got skis on you can't take them off so you're trying to walk through some passage and you're pulling it up and you're pushing it down and you're it comes right onto your heels and i i never worked so hard and i've worked really hard before but i've never worked so hard and people say if you had to do something over again what would you do? I'm like the North Pole because it is the best workout spa I ever had. Wow. Freezing <laughs> and absolutely <laughs> utterly freezing, I imagine. So oh, when yeah, you got to the North Pole, do you stick a flag there? What do you do when you get there? So we were with, luckily, we were with, I told you, the uh, National Geographic's Travelers Team. And so they have all this equipment, you know, inside their jacket. They have some batteries that stay warm so that they have their camos that are working. And they have, like, um, uh, uh, equipment that can tell you where the, uh, the North Pole is. Because that's not really where the North Pole is. It's in Canada someplace. But anyway, so we get there. But we're on ice. So as soon as you get there, you just take your picture and you set up your camp. And tomorrow morning, you have now moved off of the North Pole because the ice flow that you're on is moving. Moving. Yeah. What a concept. That's crazy. What a concept. Yeah. 
That is, yeah, when I read that, I was like, wow, North and South Pole. And how was the, was the South similar? But no, not South as far. It moves, okay. but it moves slowly. And they have little markers that they put out there. It's very celebratory because there's a station down there. And so they go out once a year and they say, okay, here is was where the North Pole is. And it its trajectory is more kind of in a circular path. And so they go out and they measure where the next one is and they put in the marker and the markers are all special made like coins, et cetera, et cetera. It's like a little domed thing. And they have a celebratory. Oh, and here is where it is this year. It's Oh, that's cool. It's like Groundhog Day. It reminds <laughs> me of Groundhog Day. <laughs> I know. It's great. So what was the longest you ever had to be away from your children on these adventures? So Everest is the longest. So it's about two months. I got a hold of one of my aunts who had been um, instrumental in my kids. She knew them. They knew her. And I said, hey, Arilla, can you come take care of my kids for a couple months while I'm gone? Even though I had a husband, not, you know, Arilla cooks, bakes, you know, all that kind of stuff. So she came and she took care of the kids while I was gone. But two months I left on, I took my kids with me. I left on March like 26th and I did not come home until like June 2nd. Wow. So what were some of the struggles and how did you, how did you feel about that? Was, I'm sure there was up and down days or. There's always up and down days. The yes. most important is like, I don't want to get out of my tent today. Can we just call off today? <laughs> yes. <laughs> And that's, I'm being totally honest, you know, it's yes. howling outside and the weather's bad and you don't have a web or uh, an app or anything. And just like, please just call up today. Say it's too bad. And I don't want to be, and it's like, okay, get up, let's go. You know, do they so, ever call off a day? I mean, as truly as there, there must be there instances. Can be, there can be. I mean, I went, so when we were heading up to the Lotsi face the first time, out of camp three, really camp two. And we're heading up and the wind was horrible. It was just, just streaming down the Lotsi face. And so we get up, it's kind of like a little lip over the glacier front onto Lotsi face, which is all ice. And the wind was just, I, I couldn't even see. It was like a fire hose is just spraying all this stuff. And I couldn't see in front of me, they couldn't see in front. And all of a sudden we're going up and I'm like, okay, you know, this is horrible, but there must be some reason. And all of a sudden you see everybody turn around and go start going down. I'm like, yes, yes, we're going home, you know, but very few days. Do you ever not head out and try? I mean, Uh and so as far as coaching goes, let's put it back in perspective. It's never that, you know, we, we never, I mean, you might be called upon to do something uncomfortable, but not something that might be dangerous. Right. Do you tie together in some of those situations? Like when you say you can't see each other, I'm wondering how you find each other. Are you are you connected? Are tied together. Yeah. Yes. That's symbolic, yeah. isn't it? In coaching. It is. But let me share with you the the higher you climb, the more you're alone. And that is in many things. That is deep, lady. Even though you might have a rope that you have to put an anchor on. So there might be an established path. 
There's no one by you. You have no idea if you've been left behind. You have no idea if you're ever going to be rescued if you fall. There's the demon mm. in your mind, right? So the higher we go, oftentimes in many things, the more alone we are because mm. we don't have that safety check. We don't have that person, people with us by our side saying it's okay. So you're saying when you get up higher and higher in altitude, you guys are tied to what? So you're not tied to each other anymore. You you have your own, you just have your own anchor. You're saying that you would use and put in to the mountain, but you're not connected anymore. Is yeah. that because it would be dangerous to be connected? There's an anchor line that's put in. So anchors are placed at certain distances and there's a rope. So we have double, double systems, two on our harness, right? So okay. we put one in and two in. And then when we get to that anchor, we undo one and put on the other side, safety. And then we put the other one on, right? Always a safety check, right? But no one might be around you. No one. So your only companion is that rope. Wow. Your lifeline. Your lifeline. Hmm. Yeah, now make that analogy to real life, the higher you climb. Well, the higher you climb, the, it is true, the more you're alone. We have less confidants. We have less similarity with others. I can't imagine. I, I worked at Allstate for, I was a um, corporate coach there. And I can't imagine the stress and strain of being the CEO. I just can't. It was some person, I, I talked to a lot of senior officers and a lot of the um, uh, senior managements, et cetera, et cetera. I unfortunately didn't get a chance to chat with the CFO, I mean, the CEO, but I can't imagine, you know, the higher you climb, you know, the more responsibility you have and the less others are around you to share in that, in your burden about being at that level. And mm -hmm. climbing is super the same. If you can't make it, you can't make it. People yeah. die on Everest, unfortunately. To the climbing, you know, I, your mind constantly plays tricks and is not your friend. And so I wonder, I'm not a, I mean, I'm a, a CEO of my company, but I'm not a CEO of Allstate or CNN or anything else at that level. And I wonder if your mind starts to play tricks on you there also. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Absolutely. So what are the tricks that your mind would play on the mountain? Oh, well, self-doubt. I've been left alone. Nobody's here to help me. They forgot me, you know, and crazy things. And part of it, I, I know for sure, and, and I speak to this in my book, is because you don't have any oxygen, like yeah. no oxygen, no thought, right? And so you just start to, um, my feet are freezing. I can't make it. I can't go on further. I'm at the bot. I see a dead body. Oh my gosh. You know what? I should turn. I can't do that. You know, there's all this self-doubt, all this talk, all this chatter, mm -hmm. as opposed to a calm mind that I know I can generate, certainly at lower levels. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, I would. I would think there would be a lot of 
needing to meditate, pray, all sorts of spiritual things probably happen on that mountain. Well, we did in our second attempt on the mountain, we did have, we were sent with cards that had an offering to the goddess of Everest and the weather was so horrible. And a couple of our, my fellow um, climbers got out and offered that prayer, offered that blessing to the mountain, asking to grant us to go. And it worked. Um, Wow. The weather got better? Yes, immediately, like within a half an hour. That. Why didn't you do this yesterday? Exactly. (laughs) It's funny today, we've um, done three three of or you're the third one, but we've done a lot of angel cards and everyone's getting the coolest angel cards that like they exactly needed to hear. You know, I love that stuff. That's very powerful. Very so powerful. So I think I'd like to just hear one. We'll get to a couple of the last questions, but I liked when you were talking about, okay, so you made it to the top of these summits, but it's the way down. You can't forget, you got to go down. And you were talking about like the seasons changed by the time you got down. Like I I really thought that was a beautiful story. So talk about the way down. So the way down, it's true. Um, You know, the pinnacle of all these um, talks that I do is always, I made the top. I could see my house, you know. (laughs) Yeah. But the real tragedy often happens on the way down. You're tired. You don't have the energy or even the wherewithal to get down because you made it to the top. And so when I went down from Everest, not only did I have to go down the camps, but I walked out to Lukala and monsoon season was happening. And monsoon season, heavy rains in India, And we could not actually fly out. We were stuck in this little town of Lukala. And my my suitcase, one of my gear bags was left there and had to be sent to me in the United States like weeks later because they had to wait. It was all wet. They dried it all out. Thank goodness to the, the company that I traveled with, you know, all the papers that I had in there were all wrinkled and smeared and all that kind of stuff. But to your point, many people pass on the way down versus on the way up the mountain. And so we think, and and here also in point, so we make it to the top of Everest. What next? So I often ask people who are reaching their difficult summit, okay, so what are you going to do next? You Well, reach- I'm going to ask you that too, so be ready to answer that. <laughs> So I've done many things since Everest. So the first thing that when I came home, walking home down the mountain is like, well, what do I do next? I mean, I did click, click. Yeah, I I did more climbing and that was great. I did some climbing in Bolivia and in Chile and, you know, it was all cool. But there was there was that need for the next level of engagement. So that's when that's when I actually went back and got all my coaching certificates and all that kind of you know, board certified, all that stuff. Because that's when I said, I made it to the top. I made it down. And now I have the wherewithal to say, hey, but there's an after, an after story. 
And I want to help people get to their goals, but I also want to make sure they're grounded in the fact that, sorry, that they're, yeah, there's a mosquito here, (laughs) grounded in the way that they have, you know, developed that there can be a next for them. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, like when you don't want to retire, and I think, I think there's a lot of people at that point in their life where they they don't want to totally retire and they still have so much to offer. And I can think of many people in, in my life that would fit into that category. And, you know, next. knowing what your next is at that yeah. point. Yeah, I've worked with many retired individuals in, in a, not, and I'm not just saying, like, oh, I want to be retired, but people who say, hey, what do I want to do next? Do you want a coaching career? Do you want a speaking engagement? You know, there are so many people who have so much wisdom and they think they have nothing to offer. I'm like, well, let's dissect that. I think you have lots to offer. Absolutely true. And especially for this new generation, you know, the millennials and the Gen Zs can learn a lot from the wisdom of those people. They can. They can. It has to be delivered correctly for that population. But they can. Yeah. yeah, they can. Absolutely true. Uh-huh. So when you wrote your book, um, and I've just had this thought as you were talking. So what was your process? Because I'm trying to write a book as well. So how did you go about doing that? You know, was it like an everyday? I think you talked about that you did weekends, didn't you? Did you do like two and a half hours every weekend? And So, yes, I I totally sat down away from people in a comfortable chair and just started writing. Because it takes, even though I'd done it all, it takes lots of research you know, the memories were there, but the factual parts were like, hmm. So I was looking up, I'm writing a second book and I I'm I just finished the chapter on the North Pole. It's like, wow, I completely forgot about Svalbard, you know, all that kind of good stuff. And it takes a lot of research, surprisingly, even for a memoir. So I I made sure I cleared my docket and I sat down and I would sit in a comfortable recliner and just type whatever. And then I had good editors. So I, I worked with the um, the company that I published with and she was great. And I used my daughter and she was great. She lifted the voice part a little bit. I was more, I'm very, I'm a nerd. I'm a scientist by education and training. And so she lifted it a little bit in a way that was a little funnier. And so I used my daughter. I have to admit that she was a good editor. But yeah, I, I you gotta you gotta lay the tracks. You gotta mm. do those mileposts. And so I would just say, I gotta I gotta write today. And I would disappear and sit down and write. That's great. I have a son that's just graduated. Though he's got a couple summer school classes from uh, creative writing at Iowa. Oh yeah. And he's it sounds like like your daughter. He's always like, Mom, you need to be more visceral. You need to add more. You know, it's, they're helpful though. They are helpful. They are. And I, I recall you saying that, uh, and I think it was, I was listening to the podcast with your editor and you, and I think you said like the last two months were the most intense. Like you thought you were like almost there and then you were like, that's when the real work started. Well, you, ha- yeah, cause you have to, if you're doing your book, you know, if you don't have an agent, which. Um, nowadays, a, a lot of times an agent is dependent on how many social media, um, what your social media looks like. 
So, you know, you might be just fine, but I didn't have a hundred thousand likes on a Twitter. It's like, okay, (laughs) I don't know. So, you know, it became that you're writing the front, you're writing the back, you're sending out for review. You're just like, wow, I was kind of glad it was COVID because I don't Mm -hmm. think I would have been able to spend as much time focused on, uh, I think it was published in 21, COVID, right? But talk about legacy. I mean, that's a beautiful legacy. You have one book, soon to be two, out there. Yeah, I think they sh- it should be w- three, maybe, if there's just so many stories to tell and and you don't want to make it yeah. boring. Yeah, you, know, you just want to that's kind true. Of make it short. So I would love to know what is the legacy that you would like to leave behind? Yeah, I want to... There are several things. I've I've really thought about it. So the legacy is I want to make sure that I have an impact on people, right? I don't have to have the legacy where my name is in lights. But like somebody says, even in the the roles that I've been playing, it's at the end of a week or a month or six months, somebody goes, wow, thanks for your help. I, I couldn't have gotten here without you. And that's not to say that they got there fine without me, right? They had to do all the work. But again, some of that coaching and broader thinking brought them to that point. And I'm super excited when I can, when you get to your Everest, I'm successful. I feel like, yes, we did this together. We're we're in this together and we did this together. So that's kind of the legacy I want to live. And, and the other one is I have this amazing spot here, I told you, in the Hiawatha National Forest. I think I'd like to make sure that it goes back to some sort of conservative, you know, conservancy. Like it, I have many, I have otters and, and raccoon, annoyingly, and a ton <laughs> of mosquitoes, but birds and, and all these kind of things. And I think that this little 17 acres, not much, I think I want to make sure that it goes back into good care because we're on a wild ride with our environment. And I want something maybe to stay the same. Ooh. Well, this has been so lovely. Really enjoyed getting to know you and meeting you. And hearing your story, like it, uh, congratulations, what an impressive accomplishment. Yeah. And I love that Likewise. I've met the first woman from America that is the Explorer's Grand Slam. That is very yeah. cool. Very, very it cool. cool. Took me a while to say that out loud because like it was unbelievable. But yeah, that's me. <laughs> yeah, you are worthy of saying that. <laughs> Definitely. You did it. No one can take that away from you. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Owning Your Legacy. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with others and rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about me and how I am owning my legacy, you can find me on Instagram at Lorette Rondonet and online at LoretteRondonet.com. Until next time.